The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Hello, and welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, April 3rd, 2012. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, here with my esteemed guest, Dr. Martha Herbert. This is my first program of Autism Awareness Month, and last week the CDC released new statistics of one child in 88 with an autism diagnosis. And that doesn't take into account all of the cases younger than the children, children's stats that they assessed. Clearly, we need an autism revolution to staunch this tragic tide, and I can think of no better person to interview today than the author of the new book called The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be, the paradigm-shifting pediatric neurologist of Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martha Herbert. Welcome, Dr. Herbert. Thank you, Terry. It's such a pleasure to be on, on the show with you. Well, Dr. Herbert, you begin your book with the fact that people with autism get better. And you say that there's plenty of science to back up the way that parents help their children get better. Let's hear about this. Let's start off with this message of hope. I think that science advances by making observations that are careful and true to what's going on so that you believe what you see enough to investigate it rather than seeing only what you believe. So if you believe that people can't get better, you might dismiss the the times when people do. But I decided to take that seriously since I've been seeing it and hearing so much and talking to so many parents and children. Um, And I also am in good company. Dr. Andrew Zimmerman, formerly of Johns Hopkins, now of Mass General, took seriously kids getting transiently better with fever which is turning out to be a huge clue to open people's minds to fresh ways of thinking about autism. So we haven't really done the kind of research I think we need to do about how people get better. But if you look at systems biology, what's going on today about gut-brain interactions, brain-immune interactions, the integration of systems throughout the whole body, the commonality of molecular signaling pathways, across organs, and you look at what people are doing, um, even in terms of diet, you're affecting so many different underlying systems in the body that also function in the brain. So there's a growing plausibility from a very high-level scientific point of view of the possibility of getting better. Wonderfully put, and I love how you said, believe what you see enough to investigate this. I've interviewed many parents whose recovered children 
had had a distinct regressive period after meeting all milestones for a couple of years. And I've interviewed parents whose children significantly improved from autism, even if there was a distinct old-fashioned and rare genetic issue going on, which I personally find a very hopeful situation when children improve even in that um, case. How has what you've seen of recovered children challenged what you learned in school? Well, let's take the case of people having a regressive period after an improvement. This relates to what I think what, what improvement is, which is a resetting of the complex mechanisms of your body, the regulation mechanisms, or what you could call homeostatic mechanisms, which have apparently gotten stuck in a, pa in a pattern that produces autism. And what I think recovery is, is a progressive resetting of those systems in a fashion that gives the brain and the body more options. But that resetting process has its bumps, and sometimes you can go through a further readaptation, and in the adjustment period to the new settings, your body can get confused. And I would think that that's a regressive uh, problem that can occur. Another thing that can occur to cause that is re-exposure to triggers which it was hard for the person to handle in the first place. And now the, the issue, the second issue you raised of uh, people improving significantly from autism even if there's a genetic disorder going on. I personally think that, and I think this is a uh, an important point. Uh, it's not just a question of belief. I think it's a question of how we use our language that people have used the word cause uh, too much in relation to genes. They've believed that genes are the gigantic contributor to autism, that environment doesn't contribute much, and therefore if they associate a gene with autism, they think it's causal. I think the appropriate word to use is a contributor. And what, what that helps us understand is why people with genetic syndromes like fragile X, tuberous sclerosis, many other things don't all have autism. I would say that it means that the genes related to those conditions greatly raise the risk, but they don't kick it over the top. I still think that would kick it over, what kicks it over the top is more environmental. And I would suspect that if we looked at people with fragile X who did and who did not have autism, we might find differences in inflammation and oxidative stress and the same thing with other conditions. And I, I also have a case in my book, I believe it's chapter four, um, of a girl with IDIC15 who was told by her geneticist she wouldn't be able to get much better, but it turned out she also had celiac and on going gluten-free after a number of months, she, did, she started having formed stool and she also started relating more and in the subsequent period since the book was completed, she's also had further gains from working more on the gut. So this suggests again that certainly there's a great risk and problems caused by some genes, but it's not the whole story and it's important to keep looking for other contributors even in the setting of a known genetic problem. Wow, excellent points and it's really refreshing to hear the way you put things, Dr. Herbert. So if children can recover and there are justifiable, safely monitored, scientific ways to do it, how do we support the research agenda and resources to be able to make this hope available to every child and family? I think that we don't have a, 
we don't have an official scientifically proved through randomized clinical trials program for getting people to recover. And one of the reasons is that randomized clinical trials are usually aiming to test whether one treatment is better than another for some kind of marginal improvement, but they're not aiming for a complete recovery. We have to, I think we have to expand the way we study things in order to be able to test uh, programs for recovery, and I do think that they're going to have to be individualized. Um, and that, so, so I think that what we really need to do is develop data capture systems to track what people are doing prospectively in a detailed fashion so that we can track the brain changes, the immune changes, the gut changes, the infectious changes, the behavioral changes, the language changes, and so forth in parallel with each other. This can be done as part of a formal study, and it can also be done if people enter their data in a rigorous fashion in databases. Having completed my book and being involved in the launch of my book now, I'm, I'm finally getting over the hump of the enormous amount of work involved in this, and I'm hoping to, intending to, indeed, conduct that kind of research myself. Excellent. Uh, yeah. Excellent. I kind of suspected you might be doing that. So you're recognizing autism as a whole body disorder. You're writing about it as a whole body disorder. So fundamentally, when you talk about autism as a whole body disorder, what does that mean? Can you describe all of the symptoms that you've seen in children over the last couple of decades and what you now realize about the interrelationship of body systems? A lot of people know about the gut problems that are so common, the immune problems, the allergies, and so forth. There are a lot of other things that you see, not necessarily as frequently, bone density problems, kidney problems, skin problems, malignancies. Uh, there are underlying systems problems like mitochondria, the energy-producing uh, organelles in, uh, inside our cells, which do not respect organ boundaries. And if they have a problem, it's going to show up in all kinds of different systems especially the high energy demand systems like the brain and the heart and the muscles. Low tone, low muscle tone may be at least one of the reasons for that may be that kind of thing. So you have both symptoms that you see in different organ systems and you have underlying molecular and cellular mechanisms that are not organ system bound, that are system wide. All right, so you're... You're talking about things like skin, the big wrapper of the body, and the gut, and mitochondria, and through all of this, Dr. Herbert, you're telling parents through your book that their children are in there, and that extraordinary things can happen if the right keys are turned, even at a later later age. Yeah, I do have a story of a woman in her late 20s, um, a woman who had autism and then developed chronic fatigue syndrome. And when she was treated through a metabolic and immune supportive approach for the chronic fatigue, the autism went away. And I think that's very potent. I think, in fact, she's, uh, actually, I shouldn't say that. So she's, um, it's, I think it's a very powerful thing, though. And there are people even older who have had at least transient uh experiences of popping out with a much more brain, brain actual functionality, talking and interacting, than usually shows up for them. Um, so, and 
there are also stories I've heard on many occasions of people whose children have recovered who then proceed, now that they're verbal, to tell stories of things that happened with the family together on occasions where the family just assumed that they were not there, that they weren't really not present, uh, that their autism was meant that they were not paying attention. And it's, it's kind of sobering to realize that this person was watching the whole thing from a point of view of a lot of intelligence anyway. Um, so what I mean by in there is that we had assumed due to the superficial behaviors that we're looking at an impairment, at a deficit, at mental retardation. But actually we're looking at something very different where some of the problems with the brain relate to apraxia or dyspraxia. And what that means, praxis is doing what you intend to do. And that means problems with implementing the intentions that you have, that you may want to reach out and grab a pencil and write something, but you can't organize the movements to do it. Or you may want to say something, but you can't make your mouth and your vocal apparatus work to do it. And your breathing, you can't coordinate all of that. So that's a very different thing. And um, speaking and acting toward your child's full potential is a way of respecting that this kind of thing is very likely, highly likely to be going on in your child. That's it. That's exactly it. It's all about respect. And I like how you described this as problems implementing intentions. Um, so that's uh, rather than the fact that the child's not in there and that the individual's not aware. Uh, when we look at our children, we can just see the, the light in their eyes and and know that um, they are every bit there, and, and respect is really key. I think this relates to how passionate parents are about their, their children and, and, and wanting the best for them and not settling for just a little bit of improvement. Any parent wants the best for their child, wants them to be the best that they can be. Even with uh, children termed neurotypical, parents send them to uh, piano lessons and dance lessons and feed them the most healthful foods. And we want no less for our children who have a diagnostic label of autism. So, Dr. Herbert, how is your viewpoint different? What about your perspective differs from other entities whereby you would call your book The Autism Revolution? It's interesting because there were two other people writing Autism Revolution books when I was writing mine. So I, I certainly don't have sole claim, I, and I certainly don't feel like I solely represent the revolution. I feel like we are creating a revolution. I, cre- I think that what I've done is do a more systematic systems biology overview of autism, marching through from genes and also environment, from the cells, from to the organs. Now, these are all things that people have talked about, but I laid it out in a systematic step-by-step building up from the bottom-up way to be consistent with emerging developments in systems biology. And I focused on um, science that pulls all of this together, and I focused on the brain basis of recovery and of impact of biomedical treatment in my chapter on the glial cells, chapter five. So I think that there are a lot of 
the systems, the systematic systems biology, and the way that I bridge it together through a, an explanation of brain function and how it gets hurt and how it can pull back and get better is are, are different. All right, and you talk in your book. Um... Oh, I forgot to say something. Okay. That, that it's also a peer-reviewed book. The book was peer-reviewed, and it's it's uh, published under the imprimatur of, of Harvard Health Publications, and that's the first time that a biomedical book has appeared, or any autism book was 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 published in that series. Wow, this is really really cool. Um, I really appreciate the fact that you've let us know that it's peer-reviewed. Very good. Uh, you've alluded to the fact uh, earlier that there's no specific autism gene. They're contributors. Uh, but you also address the fact that gene mutations can occur. So, but with the CDC now telling us that one child in 88 is affected, how would this account for an epidemic? I think the problem is not the gene mutations, to be honest with you. I think the problem is whatever it is that's causing the gene mutations. Wow. And... The, whatever is causing the gene mutations is in the same ballpark as what's causing the oxidative stress and the inflammation and uh, the growing problems with allergies and, and so, so forth, all of these different kinds of problems. When you have a growing amount of environmental stress over several generations, mind you, so that can affect epigenetics or gene expression, coupled with a, de- a diet which is increasingly depleted of genuine nutrient diversity, mm-hmm. you have an, an a, a, a very poor intake of vital minerals like selenium and molybdenum and, vitamin, and, and also of vitamin D and essential fatty acids. You're, in, you're set up to have a breakdown or a inadequate function, an inadequate function of DNA repair mechanisms. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have a problem with your genes. You're going to have uh, transcription errors. You're not going to fix them. You're going to have more errors because there's more free radicals. And that will lead to the gene mutations, but that doesn't mean the gene mutations are causing the autism. They could be epiphenomenal. They could be the same, a side effect alongside of the physiology, which I think is more what's causing the autistic behaviors. And I think it's physiology because um, of the way the brain can pop out. Now, that's not to say that these gene mutations may not play into that physiology. It's not an either-or thing. But I think that, it, like I said, the, the mutations and the pathophysiology are downstream from environmental things. So you've talked and about... I, and I should say that this is something... That that's not going to be a consensus statement. This is my belief, and I, I, I based on evidence, it's basically like a hypothesis that I think needs to be studied more. Okay, definitely. And and you're talking about how environmental factors, like for example, food, toxins, bugs, stress, all these things interact with genes, and genes influencing. Uh, how cells or our children's metabolic cycles will respond to challenges. So where are there areas of overlap between gene marks and these environmental influences? And I really liked your term epiphenomenal, really. So this is a really, 
we, we know from a lot of the work that's been presented at Autism One and in many other places that environmental factors impact our ability to perform proper methylation to replenish our glutathione. We, the, the four things which I focused on in the book, food, toxins, bugs, and stress, all, if we have poor food, a lot of toxins, destructive bugs, and not enough of our healthy microbe, and stress rather than healthy stimulation, we get overwhelmed and our system starts to move into more an inflammatory and oxidative stress state. So basically it's what I just said in response to the previous question. Yeah. And and you bring this out so well in your book, which I again um, want to point listeners toward and they can go to the website www.autismrevolution.org and in a little while we'll also be talking about your website autismwhyandhow.org What would you say are the most important overarching issues to be aware of in autism? Uh, you've mentioned the gut, mitochondria, methylation, detoxification. Or is any issue more important than the others? That's really tough. I mean, I go round and round about that. I think in the, the four that you just listed, gut, mitochondria, methylation, detoxification, how can you separate them? Um, I think the way that I would say that the important overarching issues are the things that are broken down and the things that we can do to, bear, to build them up. I mean, that's the best I can do. I, I don't know. I mean, let's say you say mitochondria come first. You're still not going to be able to fix it if somebody's gut is messed up. So it's really like a vicious circle where each thing feeds into another. Exactly. Yeah, you were saying how can we separate them out, but I've often felt as if our children were regarded as disembodied heads and um, and also that, you know, genetics was it. And it's, it only starts with mom and dad. It can't go back generations. But back to the children with disembodied heads and they have diarrhea just because they have autism, well, where did that come from? Let's go a little bit more in depth with the gut being connected to the brain. What's the uh, order of events there? Well, there are a number of different relationships. First of all, um, the gut has, is a nervous system in itself. It has neurons. It has, it has glial cells. In the brain, there are somewhere between four and ten times as many glial cells, like astrocytes or astroglial cells, microglial cells, oligodendrocytes, as there are neurons. The white matter and other parts of the, the astrocytes that live in the, the gray matter, uh, these cells also exist in the gut. They play very important roles in, in the gut barrier, or what, what if it doesn't work, is called, it leads to gut permeability or leaky gut. Um, so you've got cells, you've got a, a nervous system that is impacted. You've got production of peptides in the gut that impact the brain. You've got production in the brain of signals that impact the gut. You've got production by gut bugs of substances that influence chemical activities in the brain. Uh, you've got receptors in the brain that respond to this and signal back to the gut and other parts of the body. It's an incredibly intimate and multi-leveled connection. You've brought up the, the brain, the issues with the brain, and we hear about structural brain anomalies in autism, but were those anomalies there from birth or pre-programmed prenatally, or could insult and inflammation have caused these postnatally? This is a very touchy area. 
Um, there are some people who are saying that there's a prenatal increase in cells and cell proliferation, and there are others who are looking at brain imaging studies from somewhat later and looking at a greater disorganization of fibers, a lot of extra fluid without so much extra cells or fibers. Um, so I don't think we have this all sorted out. But I want to be clear that the issue of having larger brains, which a large subset of people does have in autism, doesn't mean that the brains are larger because there are a lot more cells. There are a lot of ways something can get larger. It can get larger through fluid. It can get larger through cells being bigger. Um, and these are these things that I'm listing, other than there being more cells, uh, are can be side effects of the inflammatory or other types of physiological changes that may be going on in the brain. And I also think this is important because those kinds of problems may be reversible, at least to some degree, medically. Um, certainly enough to change the chemical milieu of the brain. What I've come to think is that the, the problem is fundamentally a problem of poor regulation of how much excitation to how much inhibition you have. So environmental agents will often increase the excitotoxicity of the brain and the brain becomes more irritable. And that can lead to sensory hypersensitivities, sleep problems, seizures, and all kinds of signaling and brain signal coordination problems. But most people who study the brain think don't think of it as being possible. It just hasn't entered their minds, I think, that this is the way the chain of events could go. And to do to test that out requires a different set of brain imaging study design study designs. So in my uh, goal of implementing the reverse engineering idea of autism that I talked about in my book, of which I already mentioned of studying how people get better, I plan to measure glutathione in the brain and mitochondrial byproducts in the brain. And thanks to some parent funding, I have the ability to do that. And then we'll be able to and also to measure the, the blood flow. How well is the blood flowing? If you have extra fluid in the brain and swollen astrocytes, that's going to clamp down on the blood flow, which will cause all kinds of problems in brain efficiency. These things need to be measured. They haven't been measured ever in coordination with each other. So in some ways, I don't think that we've gotten even to square one in asking the right questions about the brain, although many of the things that people have studied have helped give a lot of grist for the mill, but it still hasn't been pulled together. Well, bless you for this uh, thoughtful and diligent approach, Dr. Herbert, and this just speaks to what you said about believing what you see enough to investigate it and uh, acknowledging that behavioral manifestations could have underlying pathophysiological processes, leading to the fact that these things are treatable, and that's what's going to give our kids hope. We're going to take a brief break here at the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel, and then we will return with Dr. Martha Herbert, author of The Autism Revolution. Thank you to our sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On mind, brain, and body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Every weekend, take some time out of your schedule for new reflections featuring Dr. Adam Rubenstein. It's a show about all things aesthetic, from skin care to plastic surgery, health, and beauty. You'll learn about the aesthetic products and procedures to embrace or avoid. Each show will feature live, virtual, interactive consultations that you'll be able to follow along with and featured guests from the world of beauty and aesthetics. Listen Saturdays at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, for new reflections with Dr. Adam Rubenstein on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Ask Theo Live is talk radio like you've never heard before. Following her near-death experience, world-renowned author and spiritual medium Sheila Gillette became the direct voice channel for Theo, a consortium of 12 archangels. Through this unique channel, Sheila and her co-host Marcus Gillette present you with an opportunity to speak directly with Theo live on air on any topic you wish to discuss, including receiving authentic messages from deceased loved ones and angelic guides. Get the answer you need by tuning in to Ask Theo Live Talk Radio. Tuesday mornings at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back with pediatric neurologist, Dr. Martha Herbert, author of the new book, The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. And the website is www.autismrevolution.org. There is also another very informative website associated with this, autismwhyandhow.org. And Dr. Herbert, where can people pick up your book? My book, if you go to my book website, www.autismrevolution.org, and click on Order Now, you will get a list of choices of places where you can order it from, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Special Needs Product, and other options. In the previous segment, we talked about how having a more enlightened approach such as yours leads to the fact that there are things that can be treated and give the individual hope. So what are your favorite treatments or common sense approaches that everyone can do to address autism? I wrote my book to address parents and particularly parents who had not had a lot of exposure or perhaps a newly diagnosed child so that there were things that they could do right away without waiting for a highly skilled clinician because we don't have enough of those going around who know how to do the kind of complex, nuanced primary care that's necessary for autism. I mean, we do have a primary care crisis where we don't have even enough primary care doctors for everybody, let alone the extensive uh, close follow-up needed to work on some of the harder problems in autism. So I top of the, top of the list is 
outstanding high-nutrient-density food. And I recommended a rainbow diet, which is get food from different, every different color of the rainbow because of the phytonutrients, the, the wonderful chemicals in our food that make it different colors and flavors, which more and more research is showing that many of them have and play important roles in, in helping the body regulate inflammation and helping the body produce antioxidants and many other things. And when you shower the body with plenty of that, um, the body has enough to choose from. Cells in the body don't do very well when they run out of supplies. And when a body is stressed and autism itself becomes a stressor as a sum total of all the components that create it are stressors, um, then the, the cells are in tough shape to begin with. So you need to give them what Stephen Genuis in, in Canada calls nutrient flooding. And that is the best shot at helping the biochemistry of detoxification and of many other things uh, work best. Uh, avoid processed foods like by the plague. I was on a radio show the other day with a pediatrician from NYU, and he tells his patients, read the box, and if it has more than five ingredients, don't buy it, don't eat it. That's pretty good. I just wouldn't eat out of boxes in the first place. Boxes don't grow on trees. Yeah, touche. And... Um, but it's good to hear that this message is traveling into the mainstream, that, that there's, a, there's a limit to what we should be eating. And um, really take seriously every exposure. You don't need to clean your house with these products where, like, if you use Windex, you have to keep the windows open uh, because it's not healthy for you to breathe something. You, should, you can figure out natural alternatives, and there's more and more web sources for healthy alternatives to... Um, to products. And I, I emphasize things like this because I really believe that no matter how good your doctor is, it's still foundational to do these things. Like I once had a very a woman, uh, a mom very involved in the biomed community want me to do a metabolic workup on her son. So I said, well, gee, what is he eating? And it turns out he was going through four liters of Coca-Cola a day. Oh, my. And I all of the biomed and supplements and workups in the world are not going to fix that diet. You've just got to go to the source. Everything in our bodies comes from what we put in our mouth. So I can't emphasize that enough. And I don't think that supplements are substitutes for food. Supplements only have the things we know how to identify. There are many, many things we haven't identified. We don't know how to talk about them that you find in food that no one's going to have extracted yet into a pill. So that's, that's my absolute number one advice. Then there are other things like you know, probiotics and vitamin D and enzymes and curcumin, which are helpful. But I, I'd really rather emphasize the food right now above all else. Of what you've mentioned for restoring someone who has a diagnostic label of autism, do any of these also translate into ways to prevent autism, even in a sibling or a susceptible child? Well, this is... the. the should be the topic of the hour, and I would like to see the public discourse transformed so that we realize that, that preventing autism is plausible. Once you see it as a whole body condition, prevention does become plausible. So start before, when you're even imagining that you might want to have a child and clean up your diet and clean out the toxins and, and detox before, don't even think about detoxing within six months of conceiving because 
you're still going to be shifting around these things in your body. Um, maximize these nutrients. Take the allergens out of your diet while you're conceiving, especially while you're pregnant, especially while you're breastfeeding. Uh, I think we will find, my prediction is that data will show us in the next few years that simple measures of fortifying the body, even with just a standard prenatal vitamin, which already has been shown in a study from the Mind Institute and follow-up work is being done, um, that these simple measures will do so much to remove the, the triggers to immune dysfunction and to metabolic dysfunction that create the vulnerability. Um, you want people to be resilient. You want the mother to be resilient. You want the baby to be resilient. And um, yes, so the answer is definitely, even though we have not done the studies yet, there are a lot of clinicians who have been practicing modest and safe interventions, but consistent ones. And I, I think that, that this is absolutely critical. And then speaking of siblings, we often hear about twin studies, but what do twin studies really tell us about the relative influence of genetics versus environment? And are, are there any studies from 2011, 2012? Twin studies are interesting that we were told for years that autism was 90% genetic because of early twin studies. Those twin studies were small cohorts and um, actually the, the if one twin had autism, there was a, an, for at least in some of them, some of them weren't so strong, 90% chance that the other sibling would have features of autism. Only 60% that the other sibling would be autistic. That's still a lot, but there, are, there was a remarkable study uh, in, Swift, in Sweden in, um, in 1995, published in 1995, looking at schizophrenic identical twins, and um, or identical twins were that at least one was schizophrenic, and if they both shared the same placenta, the chance of both being autistic was 60%, but if they each had a different placenta, the chance of both being autistic was 10.7%. So that suggests there's issues going on in the in utero environment other than genetics because these were identical twins. Mm. Um, so uh, there was a large twin study that came out last year, Hallmeyer et al., H-A-L-L-M-A-Y-R, from Stanford, and it, it found a larger contribution of environment and a smaller contribution of genetics than previous twin studies had found. And I think, and it was hailed as a game changer by people who are open to that kind of thinking. It was also criticized by genetics for methodological reasons, and one of them was that the inclusion of the girls who uh, tended to pull down the genetic contribution in a way which was felt by some geneticists not to be justified. But I do think that it's an important contribution that um, that we are now it have, we have just we have more and more justification coming from the genetic side that we need to take environment seriously and and this is one of them um and i think it's beyond the time when we can just assume that it's genetic by default and maybe someday we can start studying environment i think we really need to be taking everything into account now absolutely well earlier in the program dr herbert you alluded to how uh, the 
the processes gone awry in the child could end up coming out in behavioral manifestations. So let's talk about a concrete example. When we look at a tantruming child in the supermarket, how is that child's behavior possibly connected to physical symptoms or sensory issues, and how can we make life better for that child? Well, the supermarket, first of all, is a a, a great example of of sensory overstimulation. You've got the colors, you've got the lights, you've got the loudspeakers, you've got many temptations. Uh, you may have things with different odors, um, and you have a child who is, if they're eating things, which are which one would just as soon have removed from their diet because of their potential to trigger allergens or other problems, you have a child who is already teetering on the brink of complete overload, being pushed over by some, some combination of just having too much. They may see something that they want, and they may have major impulse control problems because... It's just too much. So where I would start to make life better for that child is at home before you go to the supermarket. First of all, on an ongoing basis, improve the diet of the child. Uh, go on an elimination diet if need be and improve what the, you do feed the child in terms of high nutrient density. Um, second of all, prepare for the trip to the supermarket so that the child has realistic expectations about what's going to happen and what's not going to happen and have a stable procedure that you use going to the store. Do things more slowly when you go to the store. Don't be in a rush because the child is not going to be able to handle the rush and it's just going to melt down. So a lot of planning goes into taking children into an environment like that, and a lot of groundwork needs to be laid not only that day but on an ongoing basis. And then going to school, if... Uh, so many times behavior plans are put in place, but do we know if a child is, quote-unquote, acting out because someone's wearing perfume or because they have a tummy impaction? Or both or more. Right. I think that we haven't had, I mean, people who I've had parents tell me woeful stories of going to the school and saying, can you please not have a have a, a scent-free uh, personal products policy and being laughed at. I've also had people have that experience when their child is in the hospital. I hope that one of the contributions of my book is to have a mainstream book um, take seriously that these things can be really issues. Um, and uh, again, we also need to be aware that the internal environment of the child is definitely a reason for behavioral problems. And this can be a, a, a tummy impaction, it could be reflux, it could be some kind of allergy or itching, it could be a broken bone that they don't know how to talk about, it could be a dental abscess, right. it could be that they didn't sleep for the last week very well, um, they could have a splinter, they could have a thorn. We need to look for these things because they can't tell us about them. And I have to say that I have some stories in the book of even people who are perfectly verbal with autism finding themselves sometimes in a similar situation because the way the nervous system works in autism, sometimes you just can't localize where your strange sensation is coming from. 
so you need to have a high index of suspicion and look really hard for things from the internal environment that could be sopping up the bandwidth of the child. And I actually wouldn't mind talking about the concept of bandwidth also. Sure. sure. Uh, because bandwidth, you know, when you're trying to talk on the phone and you have five bars and you have a good connection, but if you have two bars, it really doesn't really work well enough to get something done. And uh, it gets overwhelmed and it, and it fails very easily. So I think that what we're trying to do in autism is to get more bars in the person's biological and mental bandwidth. Um, and uh, because when you have less bars, there's less you can tolerate. And as caregivers and practitioners, it's us. We really need to be plugged into what the child needs, just like that phone needs to be plugged back into the charger. Something so great about your approach over time, Dr. Herbert, and your book, is that when you respect the whole body, you respect the whole child. Yeah, that's so, right. That's right. And you need to feel your child is constantly sending you messages, but they're not in the in the signal language that everybody else is using. So you need to learn to be a decoder of these messages. You need to get inside of your child and make sense and assume that there's a reason for everything. Yeah. Not that they're just being bad or oppositional, but that there's a reason that something's not working well for them that's causing them to act the way they're acting. And hunt for it and try and find it and trying to fix the environment of the child. And by that, I mean the sounds and noises and food and everything around them and also their internal environment. So with all that you've said, tell us again about where the research agenda needs to go, how listeners can help help you help the, the, where the research agenda needs to go. I think we need to have a much more physiologically centered research agenda to look at how people are sick, how the physiology changes when you get better, how the body and the brain interact, I really want to show that, uh, and I assume it's going to be true, but of course I could be wrong, that when we have significant clinical improvements from biomedical treatment that we're going to see very interesting changes upstairs in the brain. Um, we need to be looking at um, comparative effectiveness of clinical practices that utilize a whole body approach in clinical practices that don't. Uh, we we need to have a data system to collect the individualized care that's going on. And there are databases that are developing, um, like Autism 360 and Charm, but we still haven't had the kind of leap to the moment where we're using this as a large community. And um, we need to have everybody understand that the biological substrate of autism is transformable and it's not just that we have to wait the next 40 years while we collect resources to, to get computer analysis of patterns across large populations, that we can make a difference in individuals right now. Transformable. Wonderful. And you have a really interesting website, autismwhyandhow.org. So first of all, I'd like to say that I just put this thing up a, couple, a week ago, and it's still, it's not embryonic anymore, but it's um, it's still... It's an ongoing process that I'd like people to, to have a look at and participate in over time. 
as I build in more participatory mechanisms, possibly a forum. And I would love ideas from people about how to make it participatory. But basically, what I've done is I've said that there are three core questions in autism. What is autism? What causes autism? And how can we help? And how you answer any one of these questions, particularly what you think it is or what you think causes it, will impact what you think we should do about it to help. And I'm laying out... The, the reasons that the, the, a neutral rendition of each of the different kinds of points of view, like autism is genetic, it's neurological, it's a canary in the coal mine, uh, whatever it is, um, what are the reasons for it? What are the shortcomings and gaps in each reason? What are the, what's the literature behind that? And, how can we, how, and this fundamentally, how can we create a higher synthesis that incorporates the strengths of different points of view? For example... I've learned a lot from the neurodiversity movement in, about neuro, neurointegrity and neurodignity, um, even though many of the people in that movement, but by no means all, are very uh, unsympathetic to biological treatments of autism. I personally think that their lack of sympathy is related to not understanding that there's a lot of respect involved in treatment. You're not trying to eradicate autism. You're trying to give the person options so that they can have life be, as I say in my subtitle, all it can be. Um, so the, the, the website is going to be a repository of literature. I have already have a fair amount of literature uh, links pasted in, and there's a lot more that there just hasn't been time for us to put in. Um, I'd like to have a place where, where the different points of view can connect and, and dialogue with each other in a non-hostile, in a, in I have a section there called Spirit of Inquiry, of how can we really learn to enrich our perspectives because our children and our adults with autism are incredibly complicated and they need insights from many different perspectives. It'll work the best if we're really talking with each other and coordinating. The book is The Autism Revolution, Whole Body Strategies for Making Life All It Can Be. The websites are autismrevolution.org and autismwhyandhow.org. Well, Dr. Herbert, what's the take-home message you'd like to leave parents with? The take-home message is that people are getting better. Science is, mm. science is supporting that this is plausible, that we can make a revolution of community-based systems biology to bring this along and help the world and the medical establishment and the educational institutions learn how to treat and be with and, and promote the, full, the fulfillment of the full potential of everyone with autism, which means the rest of us too. Well, Dr. Herbert, I want to heartily thank you for continuing to enlighten the public that autism is a whole body condition and to be thoughtful and respectful in our approach. Well, thank you, and I want to thank you for the same and for your indefatigable, in, incredibly tireless work to, <clears throat> to, to make things move ahead in autism. Quite welcome. Glad to help. To our listeners, Dr. Herbert will be presenting at the Autism One Conference May 23rd through 27th in Chicagoland, where she will deliver lectures and workshops solo and with author and clinical psychologist Annette Banyel. Please visit www. .autism1.org. My guests next week are Douglas Gale and Kathy Purple Cherry on adult issues like residences and employment. Thank you to this program's sponsors, OxyHealth and Superberries. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. And, and I should say, listen to me on CNN in 15 minutes, CNN Headline News.
and listen to Dr. Martha Herbert in 15 minutes on CNN Headline News. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. 